I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about a budding SCOTUS friendship, what happens when presidents make bad deals on judicial nominations, and a few cases the court will hear its next term. So first up, we're going to talk about SCOTUS frenemies. There's an article that came out recently in Slate by um, Mark Joseph Stern, where he suggests that Justices Elena Kagan and Samuel Alito may be the new Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia. Of course, Scalia and Ginsburg were uh, famous friends, but also frequent sparring partners at the court. Uh, They referred to themselves as best buds. They shared a love of opera, and their families uh, were very close. They spent New Year's Eve together many years. And there's this great photo, a famous photo of the two of them on a trip to India where they rode an elephant together. Um, Ginsburg has also said that Scalia helped improve her work, her work product. Uh, she's famously talked about there was one case where she wrote the majority opinion uh, requiring the all-male Virginia Military Institute to admit women. And she's told the story over and over about how Scalia showed her an advanced copy of his dissent before she finalized her majority opinion. She said that ruined her weekend, but uh, but in her view, it pushed her to strengthen her majority opinion. She was very upset that it ruined her weekend. <laughs> so uh, are Alito and Kagan the new Scalia and Ginsburg? Uh, well, for starters, they have similarities in terms of their questioning style at oral argument. They're very precise, incisive questioners. I have to say they're also a little terrifying. Uh, and I, I think it's they're arguably two of the best writers on the court. Uh, they've traded barbs in their written opinions, most recently in the North Carolina redistricting case that was decided not too long ago. Uh, Kagan wrote the majority opinion and Alito dissented, saying that her opinion ignored uh, the influence political gerrymandering plays in redistricting. And he said, that's like Hamlet without the prince. Um, another uh, sort of famous back and forth between them was in the Yates case, Yates versus United States. And this was kind of a silly fish tale where a fisherman was prosecuted for knowingly destroying a record, document, or tangible thing with the intent to impede an investigation because he threw a fish overboard that didn't meet certain regulations. Uh, the majority written by by Ginsburg and Alito had a concurrence, uh, sided with Mr. Yates and said that this was not an appropriate use of that statute. Uh, but Kagan, uh, in her dissent, took on both of them, and she quotes Dr. Seuss's one fish, two fish. So will this chemistry on the court translate to a friendship? Only time will tell. Also, they have the best dog uh, justices. You know, remember from The Daily Show when <laughs> they had a dog for each justice to, like, uh, pretend they were doing a Supreme Court argument. I think those are the best. So yeah, yeah. People should check that out. Um, so we expect a lot more judicial nominations to come up in the very new future. And because we know the president is listening to our podcast, we would like to encourage him not to make any deals um, and uh, not renominate any Obama holdovers. So um, a recent incident um, of demonstrating why this is a bad idea happened. So the Fourth Circuit. Um, upheld the trial court injunction against President Trump's uh, revised travel ban order. And, you know, people are saying the chief uh, judge, Gregory, who wrote this opinion, you know, he was nominated by uh, a Republican. So then, Um, of course, conservatives must agree with the opinion. Yes. So he was nominated by George W. Bush, but that doesn't mean um, he is a conservative. He was originally nominated by President Bill Clinton. but when his na- nomination was stalled in the Senate, um, George W. Bush renominated him. You know, there were some deals going on um, with the Democrats, and that's how he got on the court and wrote um, 
you know, a bad decision. And there's a number of reasons why presidents in the past have um, renominated some of the holdovers from their predecessors. Um, for example, Helene White from Michigan. She's now in the Sixth Circuit. She was nominated um, initially by President Clinton, but um, one of the Michigan senators refused to return the blue slip um, for quite some time. And Bush ended up renominating her as a part of a deal to get some of his other nominees through. Um, and, you know, surprise, surprise, she's not she's not a conservative um, on the Sixth Circuit either. So President Trump don't make any bad deals. Uh, next, we have our SCOTUS term of the week. This week's term is cert pool. So this refers to uh, how the justices pool their clerks together to review the various cert petitions that are filed every term. This can range from 7,000 to 10,000 petitions a term. So the clerks review all of them and then recommend to the justices what action the court should take. Should they deny the case? Should they uh, grant cert or take some sort of other procedural action? Uh, the practice was started in 1973 by Chief Justice Warren Burger. And interestingly, there was a study in 2006 called the Supreme Court's Gatekeepers that shows that there's been a decline in uh, in, in cases grant, being granted cert since the cert pool was, was enacted. Um, the study was actually published by then-law professor David Strauss, who is now uh, Trump's nominee to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and he's a justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court. But basically, the, the most likely reason that a clerk would recommend denying a petition is the fear that the justices might take the case on the clerk's recommendation and then discover there was some sort of procedural problem or other error with the case, and then they dismiss it. It's called a dig. A dig, yes. Dis dismiss as improvidently granted. And this, is, this would be a hit to the, the clerk's reputation and his or her pride. So I think uh, they err on the side of uh, denying cert. So this is in the news recently because our new Justice Neil Gorsuch has decided he will not be joining the cert pool. He joins Justice Alito in having their clerks independently review all of the petitions. Uh, and so this ensures that the, their clerks are, are keeping an eye towards the types of issues uh, that those justices are more interested in. Yeah, but I have heard some from some Alito clerks that they prefer not being in the cert pool because the cert pool is a lot of work. Um, and you have to spend a lot of time on each petition, even if it's pretty clear that the justices aren't going to aren't going to take it. Um, so having the flexibility to spend more time on cases that are actually cert worthy um, gives them a lot of um, benefits. Speaking of cert, uh, cert, cert grants, the, the court is wrapping up its 2016 term in the next few weeks. And so we're turning our focus to the 2017 term, which begins in October. The court has already granted cert in a number of cases. So we're going to tell you about a few of them. Um, Tiffany, why don't you talk about the Ohio voting case? Yeah. So there's an important voting case um, that the court will hear. Um, this fall. It's called Husted v. APRI. Um, so the National Voter Registration Act, the NVRA, says you can't, a state can't remove a voter from the rolls um, because they failed to vote. Um, but they do say if you fail to vote um, and the state sends you confirmation and you don't reply to the confirmation um, to confirm your address or, you know, say, I'm not dead, um, then they can remove you. And this is exactly what Ohio uh, did. And um, they were challenged on this saying that it was actually they were being removed because they failed to vote. Um, and Ohio says, no, we sent you we removed you because we sent you a confirmation um, that you didn't send back. And so this will be a really important case um, for Ohio and for all the states and how they formulate how they can remove ineligible voters um, and deceased people from their voter rolls. It's really important that the states are able to clean up their their voter rolls and 
and remove people who have died or moved, um, you know, because it just o- opens up the opportunity for, for more fraud uh, when there are ineligible people on the rolls. So next up, um, there's a case involving, uh, tangentially involving the Second Amendment. This is Class versus United States. So Rodney Class was a retired veteran um, who has a permit to carry a concealed firearm in North Carolina. He came up to Washington, D.C. to visit our nation's capital. He parked his car on uh, in a parking lot on the Capitol grounds, and he had three guns in his car at the time. He was subsequently arrested and charged with violating federal law that prohibits uh, having weapons on the Capitol grounds. So he pleaded guilty uh, to, to the charges. And then on appeal, he tried to argue that the law was unconstitutional. Uh, the first reason is because it violated his Second Amendment Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. Now, the government says that, you know, by agreeing to the plea deal, uh, he waived his right to appeal and the D.C. Circuit agreed. Maybe the Supreme Court justices are going to disagree because they, they are taking the case and will be looking closely at it uh, in, in, the next, uh, in the next term. Um, so another case in D.C. that the court is going to hear um, involves a really rowdy party that happened in 2008. So the police responded to a call about a loud, loud party. Um, you know, there was a lot of loud music and uh, they observed activity that, quote, was like that conducted in strip clubs for profit. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a ratty party. <laughs> yeah. So the police came in. Um, the partiers scattered, uh, went into various rooms. Uh, some even went into a closet. Um, they, When they were questioned, they said they had been invited uh, to this abandoned house by a woman named Peaches. <laughs> and um, so the police called, but Peaches wasn't there. And the police called the homeowner who said, yeah, no one has permission to be on my property. Like, and the homeowner's name is not Peaches. <laughs> yes, uh, critically. Um, so 16 of the people who were arrested um, sued, saying the officers didn't have probable cause for their arrest. Um and the court agreed with them and said that because uh, Peaches, whoever that is, invited um, allegedly invited them to the home, and they thought she did, um, that that vitiated the probable cause despite the homeowners not wanting anyone on his property. Um, so that should be a really interesting case um, for the Supremes to decide this term. So the last case we're going to talk about is National Association of Manufacturers versus the Department of Defense. So this deals with the EPA WOTUS rule implemented by the Obama administration. WOTUS is the waters of the United States. Uh, So in this case, uh, the real question is, what is the appropriate court to challenge the EPA WOTUS rule? Uh, Is it federal district court or do you need to go straight to a federal appeals court? That is the issue that is being litigated and that the Supreme Court justices have granted cert to decide. Now, the Trump administration is in the process of rewriting the underlying WOTUS rule, which uh, dramatically expanded um, the waters that are considered federal, you know, controlled by the federal government. So um, I'm not sure if that will affect the jurisdictional question that the justices are already going to hear, uh, but that is going to be a closely watched case in the fall. So we are going to wrap up with our round of Supreme Court trivia. Um, this time it is Friends and Feuds edition. Uh-oh. Um, yes. So, Elizabeth, you know, we've talked about, you know, the classic SCOTUS friendships. But which justices um, were such good friends that they dated in law school? 
<laughs> that was um, Chief Justice R- William Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, Justices O'Connor and Rehnquist dated briefly um, while at Stanford Law School, and it's rumored that their friendship is what helped um, Justice O'Connor get her nomination to the high court. <laughs> okay, turning uh, to feuds. No, the question, second question is, uh, which justice reportedly refused to speak to another justice for three years and why? Um, was it was it Hugo Black and Thurgood Marshall? Because Hugo Black was in the KKK and Thurgood Marshall was the first black justice? No, um, uh, but there are some similarities in this story. So... Um, it, this was Justice James Clark McReynolds. He was appointed in 1914. Um, he was very unfortunately an anti-Semite, and he refused to speak with Justice Brandeis um, because he was Jewish. Ooh. And yeah, he was said not to be a very nice guy in general, um, <laughs> and he would frequently leave the conference when Brandeis spoke. So it's <laughs> very interesting. That's not uh, very collegial. Going on, goings on. Well, you know, Brandeis, so he was the first... Jewish member of yeah. the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. And I think he was one of the very first nominees who actually had to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, to be questioned. And, and historians think that this was um, because of an anti-Semitic bias of a number of the senators. Interesting. So, I did not know that. Fun fact. <laughs> okay. And our third and final question. Who is the only justice to have killed someone in a duel? <laughs> uh... <laughs> Was Aaron Burr secretly a Supreme Court justice, and I I didn't know about that? (laughs) No. This was Justice Peter Vivian Daniel. He was appointed in 1841. Of course, Um, the famous Peter Vivian (laughs) Daniel. Everybody knows him. No, I only know about this because I saw it on Twitter this morning. Like, um, it was an on this day sort of thing. But uh, Justice Daniel got into a political fight with some businessman. Um, His name was John Seaton. But it was illegal to duel in Virginia. So naturally, they went to Maryland for their duel. (laughs) Uh, That makes me proud of my home state of Maryland right now. Uh, Well, on that note, thanks for listening to Behind the Bench. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to Heritage's podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at Tiffany H. Bates and at E.H. Slattery. Thanks.